This is the Case Dot Report. Welcome back to another episode of the Case Dot Report. Mohammed Hams is my name, and I'm delighted to have you with us for our first full feature length episode of the new year. We've got a lot of great stuff coming up for the months ahead, not least on this very episode. We've got a great case, the debut of our new regular POCUS segment, and some timely tips for the CSTEM interview this week. But without further ado, let's dive right in. Joining me for the case this month are my esteemed trainee colleagues, Lisa and Marika. All right, let's get to it. Hey Marika, hey Lisa, how are you guys doing? Pretty good, Mo. How are you doing? Hey Mo, nice to see you. Nah, delighted to have you guys with us. Right, what have we got today, Marika? Okay, so Lisa, you've just arrived on your shift on a Saturday morning. Uh, you've taken your hand over and it's about 8.30 a.m. You get a pre-alert for a silver trauma. You've got a 70-year-old gentleman uh, who lives alone who was found near the stairs in the parking garage of his apartment building by a neighbor who was on his way to the gym. The neighbor alerted the ambulance service at pre-hospital. The patient's GCS is 9 out of 15. They've got no vitals available and it's a presumed long lie with an obvious head injury. That's the only information you've got. Could you describe your next steps for us? Great, Marika. Thanks. Thank you very much for that. Um, okay, so it's half past eight on a Saturday. I'm not quite warmed up as yet. So this has really got my blood pumping. So first of all, what I would do is I would activate our silver trauma call out. Because his GCS is nine, we would be putting out a hospital trauma call out um, because we don't know his physiology, but his GCS is less than 13 and he has a significant potential mechanism of injury. So, so after the hospital trauma Trauma is put out, then I would activate the blood bank. So the blood bank will, we already have two units of O negative in the fridge, but I would be activating and putting on standby the, the massive hemorrhage protocol because potentially we may need to utilize that. And then I would get my team set up. So we would get a bay free in recess. And usually we try to get the largest bay that's available because there can be a lot of people there and we need sometimes a lot of equipment. I would be allocating my team roles. So usually I am team leader, but sometimes I do defer that role an airway team and that comprises of an airway doctor and an airway nurse that would assist them and go through the rapid sequence induction checklist. We also have then an assessing doctor uh, who assesses the patient initially when they arrive and feeds back to uh, the rest of the team and the team leader and the scribe. And then we also usually have one, potentially two procedures doctors. So they are doctors that would be performing procedures, whether that be performing a thoracostomy or performing Thomas splinting a nerve block, etc. Then we would also have um, a, our circulation team, transfusion team. So we'll need to have not only our fluid warmer and blood warmer, but also a, potentially a bear hugger. And we also have to prepare um, for for drugs that we may need to give. So if the patient has been given TXA pre-hospital, we'll have to ascertain that analgesia and potentially drugs for induction if we need to secure our airway. Excellent. All right. You've got your stuff ready. Your your uh, ultrasound is warmed up and ready. Um, you've got everything sorted. Everybody's sort of mentally ready for it. Obviously, necessary to get everybody in the right frame of mind. Everybody's comfortable with their roles. So your patient arrives in the emergency department there with an advanced paramedic crew. And he's got a single pink IV line in his left ACF. He's getting very slow running Hartman's through that. According to paramedics, he was given a gram of TXA IV en route. 
given his low GCS, he was not given any other medications, analgesia, that kind of thing. GCS was nine and he seemed to be protecting his airway fairly well. The patient was put into a full body vac mattress at scene. He's transferred over to a recess trolley and the patient is connected to monitors. Uh, you've got baseline bloods that are taken, a second larger line, a big green line is inserted into his right ACF, and the patient is properly exposed, and you've got a bear hugger onto him. What would your next steps be? Usually after we get the handover from the paramedics, and that's using the IMIST AMBO memnomic. So I use the CABC um, technique, so obviously looking for any obvious catastrophic hemorrhage that we need to tampon out urgently, and then I go on to the airway. So potentially we are we're suspecting that this patient may have a cervical spine injury, so I would try to free up one of my emergency department nurses who's involved in procedures or one of the emergency department doctors to perform manual spinal immobilization. In terms of the airway, then I'd ask the assessment doctor to feed me back what he can see in the airway, whether there's any signs of blood, vomitus, obstruction, if the airway is patent, if the patient is speaking. So the patient is opening his eyes to pain. Uh, he's making some in unintelligible sounds, but kind of responding to voice, but he's not really making any sense localizing pain as well as pulling up his arms try to to get to you in the airway there are some minor secretions there's no blood noticeable in the airway and there's no vomitus um the patient seems to be maintaining his own airway at present so what i would ask my airway doctor and airway nurse to do is to prepare as if we are going to potentially need to do a rapid sequence induction but for now we just want to make sure that the any of the secretions are cleared and that the airway is still patent and to ask them to continually reassess that and feedback if there's any change in that as we're performing the serial assessment of the rest of this trauma patient. Excellent. Okay. And I would just try and want to make sure also that the, the person who is doing the manual um, inline stabilization is comfortable because they may have to be there for a little bit of time. So then after we've assessed our airway, we move on then to looking at the neck and trachea to make sure that the trachea is central and that there's no obvious expanding hematoma of the neck. Um, and we would try and assess the C-spine in terms of palpating down the cervical spine, really to feel if there's any palpable obvious deformity or step deformity. Um, there's no palpable steps. You do notice that the patient's got quite a, a significant kyphotic spine, quite a lot of osteoarthritis. So his neck doesn't seem to be mobile at all. Uh, the trachea is central. There's no expanding hematomas. There's no open wounds that you can see. There's no bruising to the neck. Uh, so in terms of assessment of breathing, I'd like to know the the rate of breathing, um, if it's adequate, um, and the oxygen saturations. So the patient's oxygen saturations are not picking up, but he's peripherally very cold. So we probably have made sure there's a, a, a non-rebreather. Yeah. Um, his wrists are 24 and fairly shallow. There's some decreased air entry on the left-hand side, and there's some significant bruising over the left-hand side of the chest wall as well. And can you feel for any um, surgical emphysema or crepitus? There is definitely some crepitus in the skin over the, the lateral left chest wall as well. And so I would be then asking my um, one of my procedures doctors who's performing the point of care ultrasound to check if there's any signs of a pneumothorax on point of care ultrasound. All right, so there's a, a left-sided lung point that's visualized on the point of care ultrasound. Okay. 
So this is getting interesting now. Yes. <laughs> Things are heating up. Uh, so I suppose at this point we have um, isolated that we have a B problem. So we, we have a pneumothorax and potentially a hemothorax also. Uh, so I would be then um, asking my second procedures doctor to really be preparing for doing a, a a thoracostomy. Are we thinking that we're going to do just a finger thoracostomy or do you think we've got time to do two, put a drain in for him? I think you have to take step one now and I suppose there's no massive urgency about getting the drain in. That can be done once we've, I suppose, completed our primary survey and made sure that there's no other more pressing issues. But yeah, no, the finger thoracostomy should be done immediately. Yeah. Okay. Um, anesthetics have just arrived and it seems just in time because your airway nurse and doctor are a little bit concerned with the patient. His GCS is now dropping. Uh, he's opening his eyes to pain. He's only making incomprehensible sounds and, and is withdrawing from pain. So his GCS has dropped down from nine to eight. So I think at this stage, um, with the change in our GCS and our potential airway compromise that we need to secure the airway and um, so I would be getting then our airway team the ICU doctor and the ED doctor um, working in conjunction with the airway nurse to to perform rapid sequence induction. Intubation goes off without a hitch. Okay so our airway's now been managed um, and our breathing so your SHO has performed the thoracotomy thoracostomy thoracostomy Jesus that is drastic for a pneumothorax <laughs> wow <laughs> oops <laughs> thoracostomy okay so uh, your SHO has performed the thoracostomy uh, and the patient seems to be doing well. Uh, there's a lot less resistance to uh, bagging and we're able to put the patient on the vent. Now we're onto circulation, which is the fun part. Okay. <laughs> so I'm glad we managed to secure the airway and our breathing um, has responded to the thoracostomy. And our current observations, could I get an update on those, including a pulse and a blood pressure, please? Okay. So your patient has a heart rate of 100 which is okay. Uh, he's got a blood pressure of 85 over 50, which is a little bit concerning. Uh, and again, he's very cold peripherally. He's got a core temperature of 32 degrees Celsius. He's being rewarmed with the bear hugger. What would be your next steps? Fluid resuscitation. <laughs> yes. So what does this man need? He needs some blood products. Yeah, for sure. So what I'm concerned about for this gentleman is that I suppose we don't know a huge amount in terms of his, his ample history, what other medications he's on. So um, his heart rate is 100. He potentially may be on a beta blocker, in which case that's actually masking a much higher uh, tachycardia. Uh, so that's what I, that concerns me. Number two, what also concerns me is that he could be on not only an antiplatelet but an anticoagulant uh, so whether he's on warfarin um, or whether he's on one of our neuro-oral anticoagulants like um, ibix, abixaban, edoxaban, digabatran or rivaroxaban uh, so that, that is what's concerning me because he potentially may be having a massive hemorrhage that we need to control. We've got two secure IV large bore accesses peripherally, is that correct? Pink and a green. I like it great, please. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned that this gentleman is, is hemorrhaging, so we need to get as, as much good wide bore access as we can. Um, we need to take, first of all, a blood sample from that if 
from the patient if we can to send off to the laboratory as our as a reference point for our group and hold sample. So that's a priority. Then our second priority is getting a full blood count, a coagulation profile with the PT and APTT, and also a fibrinogen level because we will potentially be replacing that and we'll need to check those levels. Then we'll also need to check a renal profile and a calcium level because calcium is a cofactor in clotting and it often can deplete in massive hemorrhage. So I suppose we'll probably, we'll probably give some calcium gluconate anyways, regardless of the level um, as we're transfusing, especially because, you know, with that blood pressure, it sounds like this man's going to need quite a few units. Absolutely, yes. So you mentioned, Lisa, we're getting the blood products into him. So we've the first two units of O negative, so that's going through the blood warmer as we speak. But we're concerned that he's bleeding somewhere. Where are we going hunting for that bleed? We know that there is approximately 300 mils of hemothorax in the left side of his chest, but we have to look elsewhere. So we're going to have to get, again, our point of care ultrasound king or queen to be performing the rest of the so the extended fast scan. They just finished getting that um, ultrasound guided 16 gauge in in the uh, left basilic vein there. So they're they're ready to go again. So they're scanning around the abdomen. And what do we see on that fast scan? Doesn't seem to have any free fluid in the abdomen. So Morrison's pouch is empty. There's nothing between the spleen and the kidney and the pelvis seems blood free. What you do notice, however, is when you do your blood sweep of the patient uh, right at the beginning is he's got a massive scalp hematoma uh, on the left hand side and he's got extensive bruising on the chest wall as well. Just perfectly just going through the, the pelvis and the long limbs just to check for any obvious hemorrhage there. Pelvis is table and he's got a pelvic binder on it and it seems to be appropriately placed the long bones seem to be intact uh, there's no massive bruising or swelling around any of the long bones there's nothing that's obvious there's no massive femur fracture or something like that that's jumping out at you he's bleeding from somewhere we've identified the scalp hematoma and he's probably got a laceration there that you know he might have lost some blood through so that's a potential source but no other immediately obvious source at the moment but we're doing our best to correct his hypovolemia um, secondary to presumed blood loss at the moment. Have we got a blood gas for him actually? So your pH on your patient is 7.2. Isn't too bad. His HB is 10. His lactate is 8. And his calcium is 1.9. Right. Um, in terms of D, we know his um, GCS is now 3T. How about his um, pupillary responses? What have we got? Interestingly, his pupillary response on the right hand side is normal. His left hand side is a little bit not so much. Uh, he's got extensive conjunctival swelling. The eye appears to be proptose and they're very tense to palpation. And the left pupil is not reacting to a swinging light in the right eye. Oh. Dun, dun, dun. I'm very concerned about this. So this is Saturday morning at 8.30. I'm very concerned that this potentially may be an orbital compartment syndrome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this this worries me. So are we, um, we're giving the ophthalmologists a call and asking them to slot this in at the end of their theater list tomorrow? Is, is, is that right? Uh, no, no. Okay, okay. Uh, often, just checking, just checking. Often I do speak, um, if, the, if you have an ophthalmologist available, um, I do speak with them because occasionally they are either in the department seeing another patient um, or they're potentially within 
they can be there within the next five to ten minutes. But um, if they're not available, then this is a procedure that all emergency physicians should be prepared to be able and be able to perform. So this has to be done now. Um, we're saying, and we're getting we're we're getting the uh, the bits and pieces that we need ready for it. And um, and Nisa, you're stepping up to the mark. Talk talk us through what you're going to do right now. This is similar to a lot of procedures in emergency medicine. This is a two-stage procedure. The first stage is actually opening up the lateral canthus, and then it's performing the cantholysis afterwards. Yeah, no, it's important not to forget that step. Excellent. Okay, so how's the eye looking after we do that, Marika? So we've been looking at the eye. Mm-hmm. There has been some quite a bit of blood oozing from kind of around the lateral canthus now uh, and the eye is feeling definitely less firm the eye is settling back down into its orbit by the looks of things the proptosis is getting a lot better um, and uh, probably about I'd say about 20 minutes later you do a swinging light test and your your um, left pupil is reacting again Excellent. That's a relief. So we have corrected the relative afferent papillary defect. Fantastic. Let's just do a quick recap of our primary survey then after that um, important intervention. So our airway is still protected. Our breathing is mechanical. We've got decent airway pressures. Decent airway pressures. Okay. Occasional bit of blood oozing from the thoracostomy side. (laughs) Uh, your patient has responded really well to the two units of house raid. His BP is now 110 over 70. Uh, his heart rate is still kicking around at about 100. His temperature has come up a little bit. His temperature is now 34 degrees Celsius. Excellent, excellent. So then in terms of our D, we've looking back at the eyes, they're looking a lot better. They're behaving themselves. Our, our glucose on the gas was... Our glucose on the gas was seven. Okay, great. We exposed the patient earlier on, but I suppose that we, we might take this opportunity now that we've kind of mostly settled everything to do a log roll and make sure we're not missing anything in the back. And I suppose that's E and F. I'm sure he's got family outside in the uh, in the family room. Um, it might, might be a good opportunity to get someone to update uh, family on, on on how things are going. And what are we what are we doing next? So I think this gentleman is is at present uh, safe to go to CT, then also to get one of our colleagues to speak with the family to get a little bit of collateral background history um, in case there may have been any any reason why he had the fall in the first place. And it's also just good to have a second look at um, the ECG in a little bit more depth as well because there potentially may be something on the ECG um, or get a second a proper second ECG because sometimes there's interference on the first one. Excellent. Right, so we're in the scanner. What, what are we getting scanned? So, in, well, for this gentleman who has presented with a GCS of nine and less, we essentially do not know what other injuries he's had because we've not been able to fully adequately assess him. So he needs a CT scan of his brain, a CT scan of um, his cervical spine, and at least also of his thorax, abdomen, and pelvis. If you were concerned about an injury to the long bones that was causing any um, peripheral pulse deficit, then that would have to extend into the long bones of that area. But for this gentleman, I think we're happy that his long bones have not been affected. So we'll need to do a CT brain, CTC spine, and then we'll need to do a trauma protocol on the thorax, abdomen, and pelvis. So that's giving an arterial and a venous phase. Any, any findings on any of that, Marika? Got a small left-sided subdural hematoma. Uh, unfortunately, has a contracue, small intraparenchymal hemorrhage uh, on the right-hand side. It's got significant facial fractures, especially around the left 
orbit. There's some air in the orbit on the left-hand side, uh, and there's evidence that there was retrobulbar hematoma. There are no C-spine fractures, thank goodness. Then on the left side of the chest, he's got a fourth, fifth, and sixth rib fractures uh, with fifth and sixth flail segments, um, and he has a significant left-sided hemoneumothorax. Uh, there aren't any intra-abdominal or pelvic injuries. How about the bits and pieces we put in there? Um, how are our tubes looking? The tip of the um, ET tube is at the carina. Okay, great. And uh, our, our chest drain and the thoracostomy is... Uh... <laughs> so the ICD is in. Uh, it is pointing towards the base of the lung. It's in the fifth intercostal space. It doesn't seem to be kinked anywhere. It's definitely inside the thoracic cavity. So we're happy. Right space, right place. Right okay. space, right okay. place. Good. Fantastic. Excellent. So we come back to Rezos. We do another kind of once over from the top just to make sure everything's going okay and where is this gentleman going and what are we doing next lisa so this gentleman will need to go to an intensive care unit now his priorities in terms of his injuries he has a significant head injury so we need to discuss with neurosurgery in terms of our management of this patient if you have neurosurgery on site, they may potentially come down to see the patient. Otherwise, it will be having to to telephone to the, your neurosurgical center. We will also have to um, inform our cardiothoracics team. They may have all also already came down as part of our trauma team call out, uh, and so that because he's, we've had to put in obviously a chest drain and he's got a, a flail segment on his on his chest so that's those are the two specialties that we will need to discuss immediately with as well as our intensive care colleagues because even if if he's going to be kept in our intensive care unit on site they will need to know but also if he's going to be transported out then they may need to help facilitate that service absolutely absolutely and again we'll, we'll probably update ophthalmology on what uh what we've been getting up to in their uh, in their playground but um yeah the, they'll they'll likely come around and review the patient in uh, whichever icu they end up in very good that's a job job well done excellent you've got a very well organized and very effective team lisa it's all about the team that's it it's all about the team but uh no that was a that was a, that was a tricky case and uh, there's a few definitely a few bits going on there and we uh in terms of the trauma we definitely had identified kind of the the important bits that were going on and fixed what we needed to fix but you know there's, there's probably a few more considerations about this patient uh, that we need to think about so again we're kind of talking about silver trauma and in terms of our silver trauma presentations these are these are becoming the commonest subset of our major trauma presentations. It's a trend that's likely to uh, to, to continue for probably the remainder of our, uh, remainder of our careers, anyways. And uh, yeah, uh, fall less than two meters is the commonest mechanism, and uh, most commonly happens in the home. And Lisa, so talk us through kind of you know your your initial kind of thought process when you're t thinking about the uh, the trauma call again, because um, that's that's a really important point to think. A lot of the time, these patients come in and they're either not treated with the same urgency as a younger trauma patient or um, they're not reviewed by a senior um, clinician and, and and they're all things that we need to we need to definitely avoid yes absolutely they have a completely different physiology um, they they're more likely to get subdurals and they have they're more likely to get cervical spine injuries because their bones are more brittle they're more likely to get lung injuries because they just they don't have that cap the compliance in their lungs they're more likely to get cardiac injuries as well and their physiology is completely different so what may look like a, a normal physiology for a young person is not normal for an older person. So a blood pressure less than 110 millimeters of mercury is hypotension in an older person until proven otherwise. Yeah, yeah. And the leading cause of death in the from our 
our trauma audit and research network data in Ireland. So that's part of the National Office of Clinical Audit. So head injuries and thoracic injuries in patients over the age of 65 are the highest cause of death. So we need to we need to be really cognizant of that. Um, and you have to have a, a lower threshold of doing a CT scan on these patients because they may have an occult injury that you just cannot see. Most of the elderly patients that we, that we see in the department are on a blister pack of about 50 medications. You've got something that brings your blood pressure down. You've got something to thin the blood, something to make your heart beat slower. So all the things that we don't like in trauma. By the time they present to you, you all of the medications mask the normal physiological reactions that you would get in a um, in a younger patient that's not on a boatload of medications but that's what keeps us on our toes that's it exactly yeah yeah and like like we said with this case especially like you know a lot of the time there's there's something else kind of lingering behind that collapse so you know you're not you're not you're not just dealing with the injury you're dealing with their possible you know acute or chronic uh, medical condition that might have precipitated it um the polypharmacy that's probably contributing to it you know so there's there's a lot there that's going on so let's talk about the primary survey with a particular focus on what's relevant for our silver trauma patient um how did we approach this so um airway and c-spine so we went for manual inline stabilization initially uh lisa um talk to me about that this uh this is a technique that is used both in um, pre-hospital and and in hospital care and it's where you get um one person to manually stabilize the cervical spine and it's useful also it's useful in pediatrics i've used it a lot in pediatrics um so it really facilitates the cervical spine being controlled without it being in a rigid collar because often in these patients they especially when they have kyphotic necks their their position of comfort um may be different to um to a younger person um and they may have a condition like called ankylosing spondylitis so they may actually have have necks which are much more brittle um, uh, in terms of, of injury. So you want to be able to, to stabilize their cervical spine without putting it, um, contorting it into a position which might actually make their potential cervical spine injury worse. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That's a, that's a really good point. Between rheumatological issues and different kind of flexion deformities, we definitely need to be a bit more careful about our, um, our, our C-spines in this scenario. And then when it comes to later on and your airway secured and you want to get something, something that's going to stay on for the next little while until we're able to clear the C-spine. In our department, we use a Miami J color. There are other um, soft colors that are available um, on the market. Um, so, And we use that instead of using a, a rigid cervical collar because they're more likely to cause pressure sores and actually their, their fitting is, is has been shown to be very poor. And uh, then kind of moving down to, their, to our breathing, well, what kind of considerations do we need to be thinking about, Marika? Older people are very difficult to assess generally that sort of older lungs um, just they're not going to be ventilating well. So if you've got rib fractures, you've already got stiff lungs. Um, if you've now got rib fractures and you're in a lot of pain, you're not going to be ventilating as well. And chest x-rays will miss approximately 50% of rib fractures. Uh, I think you're absolutely right there. So um, kind of older patients with pre-existing uh, lung pathologies uh, will definitely um, pose more of a challenge. And um, I suppose kind of, you know, minor insults such as isolated rib fractures, even, you know, in a younger patient, 
patient aren't you know they're not that big a deal but for for someone who's elderly and frail can be a lot more significant uh, with multiple rib fractures could be potentially life-threatening and then just the other thing to kind of mention as well is just to kind of keep an eye on that respirate as well so our uh, yeah those physiological parameters are important to keep an eye on so if someone's very tachypnic that's uh, that's that, that that that's that's bad news i'd say it's probably the most ominous um of the, of the vital signs yeah absolutely and probably one of the most a uh, neglected one of the vital signs as well and i might also just uh, say about in terms of rib fractures in this um population over 65 a uh, what is a great tool is a uh, calculating their chest injury score so it's a scoring system which really um it, it really is, is how severe their chest injury is um, and it, it can determine what's the best level of pain management for this patient. So whether that be doing something like a serratus anterior block, an erector spinae plane block, or whether they need something like a thoracic um, um, epidural. Uh, so that's something that um, we'll, we'll link in the Yeah, we'll link notes. that in the show notes. Yeah, that's great. Um, that's brilliant. So um, Lisa, talk to me about your C then. We're moving on from B to C. Well, as, as we had discussed earlier, um, the, the physiology and circulation of an older person is very different. So um, they will tend to have their blood pressure will tend to be slightly higher. So when we look at a, a younger person and we say that a hypotension is less than 90 millimeters of mercury in an older person, less than 110 would be concerning for us. And also about the, the mounting of, tach, of um, a tachycardic response. So most patients um, over the age of 65 are on a beta blocker. So that will blunt um, their, their tachycardia response. So a normal heart rate in an older person does not mean that there's no hemorrhage or no significant injury. A, a, a good way on one of the resources that I uh, was actually looking over, and I'll share this in the show notes as well, but um, how they phrase it is hidden shock. And I think that's a really good way of looking at it because, you know, you can have someone sitting in front of you with normal in inverted commas vital signs um but they could have been you know if they're usually quite hypertensive and they come into you with a blood pressure of 115 systolic and you're kind of patting yourself on the back it's like oh everything's a-okay but this could be significantly hypotensive for them you know so it's uh it's important to kind of think about uh think about what their baseline might be but uh yeah and uh, you mentioned earlier on about our anticoagulants any kind of yes. considerations around those absolutely um so this is why it's important to get a good ample history um, from either if the patient if you can or or a family member or their previous notes um, from them being in hospital or in the department because you can see if they are on active a anticoagulation like warfarin or whether they're on one of the oral anticoagulants like digabatran, a rivaroxaban, um, edoxaban or abixaban because you may well need to potentially need to reverse those agents if they have um, significant major hemorrhage mm -hmm. and you'll have to get then the, the hematology lab involved and the hematology team also because these can be quite difficult uh, to um, to manage um, especially if the patient also has uh, like for example a low platelet count as well or uh, yeah it can be very challenging but our, uh, I suppose our friendly hematologists on call will kind of guide us through whatever we need to do for, for reversal and everything else there um, in that scenario. And then their ECG is also very important. So sometimes whenever you're 
doing your full trauma assessment that you actually forget to perform the ECG, which is really important, especially in this age group, because that might have been the reason why they had the fall in the first place. Do they have complete heart block? Do they have any significant ST um, ischemic changes on their ECG? Mm-hmm really important um if they, if they have a pacemaker that you can see has it did it f- or a, a defibrillator did it fire all these kind of all these things are really important to, to note in um in your history and your assessment then in terms of d i suppose it's kind of you know doing a proper um full primary survey was really a, a kind of well illustrated in this case where you know we got down to there and then we started paying a bit more attention to the eyes and we we're just like oh hold on a second there's something something something's going on here you know so uh yeah so really important we kind of do our i suppose if it's a conscious patient who does not have some plastic in their throat we do a a proper gcs check pupillary reflexes and a a brief neuro exam if possible um another another good point here is that if there's any kind of you know decrease in gcs or agitation of any sort we, we need to kind of figure out why that is just because a patient's old don't presume that this is what they're normally like and this is normal for them um you know on until we figure out that this is their normal we need to look for reasons as to why um why they've got a low gcs or why they're agitated and and even whenever they they can have a normal gcs for them if the mechanism is significant then they they may still have um an cerebral bleed that we just don't see because they have a lot of space in their brain to compensate for that so We mentioned earlier on about um, exposure. We're looking for kind of long bone injuries, but we're also looking at temperature and hypothermia. I, I think Lisa and her team managed that quite well earlier on. But uh, talk to us a bit about that, uh, Marika. So it's really important to appropriately expose your patient, which means everything's got to go. We can always cover them up, but the important thing is that we properly can assess the entire patient front and back. And also the skin integrity. So they, if, if they have, if they've had a long life for several hours. Uh, and then um, the important part of exposing a patient is that you have to, we have to maintain the patient's temperature so we've exposed them then it's also our job to get them warm again so we're covering them in blankets uh if they've got a normal temperature or then the active rewarming of the patient which could be anything from just giving warm fluids or applying a bear hugger to uh, aggressive rewarming strategies like um irrigating the bladder or irrigating the stomach with warm saline uh, through a nasogastric tube and a, and a catheter. So, right, that's our E. That's, that's a very well done primary survey. So let's get to the meat of it. Um, so the big things we had to do here, we had to put in our, do our thoracostomy and um, put in our chest drain. And then um, we had to do our lateral canthotomy. How did uh, how did you feel about that, Lisa? My adrenaline was going up through the roof, yeah. Um, because it's not a procedure which I've I've ever done before but 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 I think as you said earlier on it's kind of one of those ones and there's a small subset of these in emergency medicine procedures where you will have to do it or it will need to be done and there might not be anyone around who has ever done it before but it still needs to be done so we need to be ready um, for that eventuality and this is this is uh, this is one of those things that fits in that exclusive club of, uh, of, pr- of procedures so let's talk about why we do it what you've got is an orbital compartment syndrome okay what does that look like you're going to have in it let's say you've got an awake patient that i don't know got punched in the face or was hit with a pole or something uh, and they're going to complain that they've got decreased visual acuity mm-hmm. 
that it's going to be your first day. I've got a sore eye. You'll notice proptosis. Um, you will have bruising of the eyelid. Then significant chemosis, which if anybody has actually seen chemosis in a patient, it's one of the grossest things that I've ever seen. Essentially, the conjunctiva looks like a blister. Um, and then when you press onto the actual eye, onto the orbit, the eye feels like it's about to burst. It's very hard, firm, feels like you're pressing onto an egg. If you are able to do it, you can uh, measure the intraocular pressure, but that's not really kind of within our wheelhouse. Um, you will get ophthalmoplegia. Uh, and uh, I think the most important one is the... Relative okay. afferent pupillary <laughs> defect. <laughs> RAPD, we'll go with that. And I think that it's bearing in mind that the, this, this is in an awake patient, they will complain of decreased visual acuity and you'll be able to assess if they have ophthalmoplegia. Yeah. But um, in an unconscious patient, this is where it's much more challenging like this gentleman because really all we had to go on was the proptosis, yeah. the, the chemosis and the RAPD. And tense eyeball, I suppose, as well. Absolutely, in the tense eyeball, yeah. Well, like, what are we going to be doing to confirm this? Are are you going to put this patient through the scanner? Are you going to ultrasound this? Are you going to, um, uh, I don't know, try and measure the intraocular pressure? What, what do you need to do to, you know, to confirm that this is what it is? Well, it's a bit of a clinical diagnosis, isn't it? It is. It's a completely <laughs> clinical diagnosis. And yeah. you are not going to, you're not going to wait 20 minutes for Absolutely the patient to not. go into scan. No, and no, then, no, no. And then when they come out, they go, geez, doctor, I just can't see it all out of this eye anymore. Exactly. So that's kind of, that brings us on to the when, because this needs to be done without delay. So you've got the whole time, you've got increasing pressure building up behind that eye and that will cause retinal and optic nerve ischemia. And uh, so that can, that's what makes this procedure, I suppose, and time critical vision saving kind of procedure. And talk me through how you do it. Hey, so first of all, as with all things, making sure that you have the patient in the right position and that you're in the right position to do it for the patient. Hey, so if if it's the lateral canthus of hey, the right eye and you're right-handed, it's probably better to go to the patient's right. Mm. Um, if it's doing a lateral um, canthotomy on the left eye, sometimes it's better to be actually, if you're right-handed, to be above um, at the patient's yeah. head. Yeah, yeah, bed, yeah, so yeah. making sure that you're in the right position to do it um, and also getting your all your equipment so you should be using some form of a of septic technique so um, using chloroprep um, and also if the patient is a especially if they're um, awake some lidocaine would be useful um, for local anesthetic and you also need um, if you have them um, tenotomy scissors and straight artery forceps as well and make the decision that's the hardest thing in this is actually making the decision to do it when you start making the incision then you've committed that's it yeah no that's the, the i think probably the most important point to make here and this you know applies for our lateral cantotomy and um inferior cantolysis uh, but also some of these other procedures uh, that are very time critical as well the, the, step one is recognizing that it needs to happen and step two is committing yourself to do it and making that decision is the most important step but yeah so right talks through um our next steps lisa first of all you need to identify where the lateral canthus is um, cleanse the area with a and and then infiltrate with um one mil of one percent lidocaine 
and then crush the lateral canthus with the forceps for approximately one to two minutes. So that just really reduces the bleeding. And you might, if you have lidocaine with adrenaline, might help with the hemostasis as well a little bit. Absolutely, absolutely. And then you you um, cut through that crushed um, tissue off the forceps um, laterally, um, and then you pull the. So that's the first. That's the first stage. Mm-hmm. So that's your canthotomy part, okay. Yeah. And then we're going on to the cantholysis yeah. part. And this is actually the bit that releases the uh, that releases the pressure behind that eye. So this, this is the, the really important step. Yeah. Yes. So after you have cut through the lateral canthus, then you pull down the lower eyelid and you can you, you can just use that, you can do that using a forceps. And then you will find a, a tissue under the, under the canthus, which feels like a, a guitar string. Yeah, yeah. So they kind of typically say to, with the um, with the with your kind of curved scissors, just to kind of strum, and you'll feel something kind of tense there, and that's your that's your uh, that's the inferior crust crust of your lateral canthal yeah. ligament. And then you you cut through that ligament, um, with the scissors, and that performs the inferior canthalysis. So you should be directing then your scissors inferiorly and um and perpendicular to where your canthotomy incision was and this is like understandably very visual sort of thing to kind of try and get your head around so we'll uh we'll we'll share a really good resource actually i can see lisa has it open there but that's the em3 um resource drills i literally before every set of nights i have i have a look through all of these uh because you never know when you might uh, need to do this so it's a it's it's always good to have them fresh in your head um so we'll share that it's a really good uh, really good visual resource um to have a look at how this is done um but that's excellent so you cut through that um acanthal ligament and uh you're seeing a little bit of blood oozing out um are you worried about that no good no, good that that's exactly what we want that's when you know that the pressure is being being relieved very good well done guys that's um that's a job well done we'll probably leave it there from us and we'll head over to someone who's done a couple of these before and he'll talk to us about the case in general and about the uh, about the procedure as well so we'll head over to our adult in the room so uh thanks very much lisa thanks marika thanks Mike. thanks so much thank you Our adult in the room this month is Dr. Fran O'Keefe. Dr. O'Keefe is an EM consultant in the Matter Hospital in Dublin. He completed his advanced training in EM in the Alfred Hospital Emergency and Trauma Centre, Melbourne, where he also worked as a senior trauma fellow and subsequently a consultant in both the emergency department and the trauma service. As a regular ACLS and ATLS instructor, Fran is well versed in critical care and trauma resuscitation. And as a co-founder of the procedures course, there's none better suited to talk to us about this case. Take it away, Chief. So thanks for having me, Mo. Delighted to be here uh, talking all things trauma. So this case, uh, really good case to discuss. And we see a lot of these. We've been seeing a lot of them for a long time. But I think the realization that we can approach them better and treat these older patients better is is really coming to the fore at the moment globally. And they aren't going anywhere. Our elderly made trauma patients are just on the rise. And so I think we need to have a good standardized approach to deal with them because they are, they're difficult. They're different to our, let's say, in very common normal populations. Um, And so they deserve to have aspects of them which change our our management approach. So looking at this case in particular, um, this elderly person. I guess I'll take a a top-down approach, but I'll start initially my initial thoughts on what I can gather from the story. So 
I guess it's really important that our pre-hospital knowledge, we, we can get as much as we can from our pre-hospital colleagues. So I often find that when our, um, you know, paramedic colleagues or physician colleagues pre-hospital bring in these patients, we're very quick to kind of get onto the patient when that crucial information we need from the history. And I can think of a couple of patients this week already where me making a phone call to uh, or trying to contact the pre-hospital team afterwards because I needed something has changed my management completely. So listen to our colleagues, don't interrupt them, let them give a good handover and the team leader should be listening. So I try to encourage both myself and, and our trainees to listen to the handover uh, while the rest of the team is working on the patient. So mechanism, really important, can guide things a lot. Then talking about trauma in particular and hemorrhagic shock. So I think we hear a lot about it, but we know that we're not great at recognizing it um, or the need for it and especially in the in the older people so what do we do or how do we recognize it well the first thing is you got to think about it it's always got to be at the top of your mind because we know that uh, while head injury is the biggest killer in trauma hemorrhagic shock is the second biggest killer but it's the number one preventable um, killer in trauma patients so my mantra with every trauma patient that I see and stand at the side of the bed is find the bleed stop the bleed I learned that a long time ago and I it, it has stood me well. So you have to prove they're not bleeding by any way possible. We just had a case a few hours ago where we had a guy, big RTA, and he came in and uh, we ended up scanning him from top to bottom and it turned out he didn't have anything uh, major, he, pneumothorax and stuff, but no major bleeding. It was all coming from the mouth. Now we did know this, but we didn't realize the extent of it, but uh, we managed to stem the bleeding. But yeah, it can be in places you're not expecting. So find it, look for it, exclude it. That would be my mantra. So taking this specific case, um, if we're going, as I said, from a top-down approach. Um, so looking at the uh, the head, uh, I think you guys have talked a little bit about this, the canthotomy. So this patient had an obvious kind of eye injury or orbital or facial injury, and we talked about orbital compartment syndrome. And so that's essentially yeah, bleeding behind the eye. And I just have a few comments on orbital compartment syndrome. I, me I know Lisa mentioned that uh, these are one of the procedures that we need Need to know as emergency docs and this is true it's a very low morbidity procedure so i need to reiterate that the damage you can cause is minimal um, but if you don't do the procedure, the uh, effects of not doing it can be devastating for somebody, essentially blindness in one eye. Um, so uh, I have been reliably informed by my senior ophthalmology colleagues that um, they can fix pretty much anything we might do. And um, the biggest thing that can happen is a globe rupture from inadvertent puncture of the eye with a sharp instrument. So obviously avoid this at all costs. But yeah, it is, it, it is a low morbidity procedure. You are cutting. It's a two-step procedure, you are cutting the lateral campus, which is the first part of the procedure. And all this does is expose uh, your approach to uh, cut the inferior canthal tendon. Okay. And that's essentially a continuation of your tarsal plate. And that's the thing that I've seen happen in, in, in a few transfers of patients that I've received in the past. And so then we would proceed to, to go on and do the, the inferior cantholysis part of the uh, procedure. So really important. Um, and so you should see a change in the clinical signs so the uh, you know the pressure should reduce and you can see that happen when you've um, released the pressure a little bit about indications so i think if you see a big bruised swollen eye in a, in a trauma patient in the unconscious patient you have to look for an rapd okay so or a marcus gun pupil 
Okay, so if you, it is the most reliable sign for ischemia of the optic nerve. Okay, so an RAPD, look for it. If you can't open the eye, um, just try your best go again because you can a lot of the time find that you if with some real pressure and uh, some assistance you can open open the lids and have a look at the eye again if you've got proptosis there uh, in the unconscious patient especially with RAPD that's an indicator to do the procedure moving on then to the awake patient so just think of decreased visual acuity so you've got to look for visual acuity and then take any three of decreased visual acuity plus proptosis or decreased visual acuity plus an RAPD um, or decreased visual acuity and RAPD any of those do the procedure okay it's a clinical diagnosis it can be assisted by using a CT scan but if you're in a peripheral hospital don't have access to CT and you see any of those signs above do the procedure okay we can fix it it can be fixed by ophthalmology and better to go for it than not go for it moving on then down to the chest so older people please scan if you have the ability to do a CT on elderly trauma patients do the CT really important uh, test to have because what happens is all too often we discharge these patients early but it's around 10 to 12 hours they start to get into trouble their pain is uncontrolled they're at home and they're not sure what's going on they've been discharged from hospital so they think they're fine or uh, take a few painkillers this is not the approach we need to adequately manage the pain make sure we keep an eye on these patients especially with more than two rib fractures yeah, if we can get them home, great, but give them a period of time, see how they go, because it's the chest that kills these people down the road or causes serious morbidity. And then conversely, again, the patients that go home, and, and there are a subset that can go home, it's about day 9, 10, when, and things can start getting a bit difficult with uh, pneumonias and uh, chest infections. So you need to let them know if they have any signs of that, that they need to come back in. But this can also happen on the ward. So yeah, I think in terms of our older generation, you've touched on the uh, use of drugs and, and, and our different parameters. So yeah, our blood pressure and heart rate monitoring. The same goes for the very young people. So in very young, it can be difficult to know what's normal, inverted commas, in the, this group as well. Same goes for the older people. They often take a lot of medications don't have typical typical physiological uh, parameters that we're used to so it's about knowing having an index of suspicion they would be my main points of discussion on this case yeah so thanks for having me on great to discuss them and i guess i'll leave you with my uh, yeah my mantra again so find the bleed stop the bleed and if i add in a third part of that it would be uh, reverse the coagulopathy remember stopping the bleed may involve getting the patient to theater so if they got to get to theater that's great but remember the state that they get to theater in is determined by what happens in resus so resuscitate them adequately do all you can but ultimately know where they need to go what is their destination so theater interventional or whatever it may be okay thanks very much now here's something special for our next segment our new POCUS lead on the case start report, Callum Swift, invites you to join us in the echo chamber. Callum, thank you very much for having me on, on this inaugural segment of the echo chamber. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thanks for, thanks for chatting to me. And it's great to have a space to be discussing all things ultrasound on the case dot report. Uh, I think most, most of the cases will have a useful addition of ultrasound to be talking about. So it's fantastic. Absolutely. No, it's, uh, it's kind of increasingly becoming central to our practice as a, as emergency physicians. So I think it's only, uh, it's only fair that we, uh, we give it an, an appropriate space. Can you talk to us about kind of, I suppose, the direction you 
you have um, kind of envisioned for this? Yeah, so this is going to be a, a little section on ultrasound after every one of the case that reports cases and discussions. And we're going to be talking about how ultrasound, point of care ultrasound can be used in this case and more generally in the um, in the area that the case is in. So the different modalities of ultrasounds um, reflecting the different uses of them. So this one we've started with, you know, a nice, simple, easy one, commonly done ocular ultrasound. So it's it's tricky <laughs> ocular ultrasound and it's probably one of the least least commonly done or one of the ones we're least comfortable with so it's actually quite a nice one to start with because it's we're going to be able to illustrate some some key points with using ultrasound safely in the emergency department because of the fact that you know we're not experts on ocular ultrasound so to to kind of as a preamble you know Ocular ultrasound, there's a lot of good evidence behind it. As with a lot of modalities of ultrasound, there's quite high sensitivities and specificities reported in the literature, um, but it is variable and it's user dependent. So the, the, some of the studies looking at, you know, up to 100% sensitivity and, and specificities in the, in the 90s as well, uh, you know, they would have more experienced operators. And then some of the other studies with slightly lower sensitivities and specificities will probably have less experienced operators. And that reflects the, the general um, mix up of, emergency medicine physicians and people using points of care ultrasound i think like i was saying to you earlier on uh, callum thinking about it and, and like i full disclosure i have not used ocular ultrasound that often i've maybe kind of you know found one positive finding um of uh, papilledema using ocular ultrasound in the past so i'm by no means an experienced practitioner but i always kind of thought of it as this you know super specialized you know not particularly within our reach kind of a modality of ultrasound. But just kind of looking at those some of those papers, though, and looking at the sensitivity and specificity, it's not dissimilar from the type of uh, results you'd get with, you know, IV access and short access, you know, and like, I can't remember the last time I failed to get IV access with ultrasound and short access, you know, so so this is not something that's beyond our reach, is it? No, exactly. And and when you first start out using ultrasound for IV access, your your hit rate is going to be much lower than when you become comfortable in it. Um, and it's kind of beholden to us, I think, to improve our scanning skills for all these modalities because the, the reported accuracy of the test in the literature is so high that we have this free thing available to us that if we know how to use it can can really improve our clinical skills as a doctor really improve accurate diagnoses and, and patient-centered care so there's kind of an onus on us to upskill in it i think um, and i think there's also an onus on our training system to to incorporate increasingly a broader spectrum of ultrasound into our training and i was actually I'm looking sure. at the uh, the american college of emergency physicians core competencies um, for their residents and all of their emergency medicine residents before graduating their four or five year program to be in attending have co- have competency in ultrasound and trauma into uterine pregnancy triple a's cardiac and hemodynamic assessment biliary urinary tract dvt soft tissue and musculoskeletal thoracic and airway ocular bowel and procedural guidance so that's a you know, greatly expanded list from the royal college of emergency medicine's core competencies which is we is what we run off in ireland which is just the vascular access the fast the um, ultrasound and cardiac arrest and the triple um, a scanning so there are all these amazing uses of it and it's really just up to us to go and to go and learn them but with that you've got to bear in mind the potential harm that can be done the potential risks associated with working outside your comfort zone or your competency so there's a few ways of making ultrasound uh, just safer uh, to use as a as a beginner and the main thing to bear in mind is that it's 
it should be thought of as an extension of your clinical exam rather than a definitive diagnostic test. You know, it's, it's to aid your clinical just out. It's to help rule things in. So the sensitivity of ultrasound is often lower than the specificity. So usually if you see something abnormal on ultrasound, it, it is abnormal. Whereas if you don't see anything abnormal, that doesn't mean that the pathology doesn't exist. You, you just kind of have to think about it in terms of, you know, what we're usually used to doing for our physical exams. Like, you know, we all have stethoscopes. We're not all as good as each other at using our stethoscopes. So if me and you both listen to a patient's heart and, you know, one of us picks up a murmur and the other one doesn't pick up a murmur, I'm not going to go off and write in my notes, I didn't hear a murmur, therefore uh, this patient's heart is absolutely 100% fine and there can be no possibility of any cardiac issues you kind of have to have a bit of humility about your your, your examination whether it's physical exam or uh, ultrasonographic exam you know and just I suppose that's kind of where that um, where that um, kind of consideration in terms of its sensitivity comes in you know it's, it, it is just 100% a rule in test and we, we know that already from things like fast scans you know most of us know not to scan someone's abdomen not see any free fluid and say oh this patient does not have internal bleeding you know that would be an incorrect use of the fast scan the correct use is to see free fluid and say i'm concerned that this patient has intra-abdominal bleeding they need a definitive test and expert intervention with surgeons or whatever so we know we, we we're doing that already and it's to expand that principle and the other thing is to not delay definitive tests so you know it's fine to do ultrasounds for learning and with the patient's consent of course uh, you don't want to be causing pain and you don't want to be delaying a definitive test so if they're ready for ct don't be standing there scanning their eye trying to see what you can see um because that would be uh, yeah that's not not ideal no exactly and um and, and beyond definitive tests as well um definitive treatment don't delay it um if you feel it's necessary just to get a good ultrasound image um or to get confirmation with ultrasound so if we take it back to the case we had in this episode so our orbital compartment syndrome if you have signs of orbital compartment syndrome it's a clinical diagnosis you don't need to ultrasound the eye to have a look for a retrobulbar hemorrhage you just need to get on with it and do the uh, do the lateral canthotomy but keeping all those things in mind keeping that attitude of this is a rule-in test and i'm not going to delay this patient's treatment or um definitive investigation so i can ultrasound them keeping all that in mind there is huge opportunity in using this modality for our learning and for helping our patients get to their um, get to their diagnosis um, earlier, and I suppose we should probably chat a little bit more about that uh, in terms of specifics, should we, Callum? Yeah. Um, so with ocular in general, the, the main uses um, that have been identified is uh, the detection of posterior chamber and orbital pathology. So retinal detachment, vitreous hemorrhage, dislocations or disruptions of uh, structures like the lens, and then uh, structures posterior to the globe, such as the optic nerve, sheath diameter can also be assessed. And that's a surrogate for intracranial pressure, as we know already, because that's what papilledema is on fundoscopy. And I don't know about you, but you know my fundoscopy skills leave something to be desired and it seems like my sensitivity and specificity is pretty low i feel when i'm looking at the optic nerve so i do like the idea of being able to measure something rather than absolutely yeah no that's exactly where i'm coming from to this you know being able to objectively measure something is fantastic for this sort of thing because like you know our departments that we work in they're not they're not ideal 
places for this kind of testing. Like, you know, a lot of the time you'll have a patient that you're just like, you know, looking at them sitting in their trolley with, you know, just a curtain drawn next to them. And you're thinking, you know, does this person have raised ICP? I should have a look and see if I can see any papilledema. But first of all, finding somewhere where you can put them that's dark um, so you can dilate their pupils and have a proper look. And then, you know, finding the one ophthalmoscope in the department that still works. Um, you know, there's there, there, there's kind of, you know, loads of uh, loads of challenges to kind of be able to do the direct visualization of that optic nerve. Whereas with ultrasound, you need a tegaderm, you need a buttload of uh, gel, and you need the linear probe, and then you're on your way. Yeah, and we'll, we'll link in the show notes some great videos of showing the, the basic technique for ocular ultrasound. And it's well, the thing I love about ultrasound, I think most people who agree with this, it, you, the anatomy is so clear. You know, it's, it's really, it's fun seeing inside the body and actually being able to visualize so clearly what all the structures mm. are. And I, I think is one of the perfect examples where when you put the probe on, the image you see with the ultrasound is literally like that picture in netters that you learn as a medical student of what the structures of the eye are and you can look through yeah. from the anterior chamber and the iris and the lens and the posterior chamber and the retina and you can just you can see them so clearly and and that's why that when there is pathology the specificity is is so high you know it's, it's quite obvious that something's abnormal when you see it because you see the the retina floating in the breeze in inside the posterior chamber where you see the vitreal hemorrhage swirling around you know so let's chat about um indications for First of all, so what kind of patient presentations would make you think I need to I need to scan this eye? Uh, so the main one would be change of vision, so sudden loss of vision, um, and then uh, trauma as well. So consideration of things like um, uh, traumatic retinal detachment or uh, foreign body. It's important to caveat the trauma that if you're suspecting a globe rupture, <laughs> to be very very careful or not to do it at all because you don't want to exacerbate the the condition. Yeah. I think to be honest, it's probably safest just to say if you're suspecting globe rupture, don't do it. I suppose there's some places where you can see that, you know, like minimal pressure and whatever else. But just if there's a suspicion of globe rupture, just I think we should treat that as a as, as an absolute contraindication. And then beyond that, just the other thing, uh, symptoms of ICP, go ahead and do it. Um, then in terms of our technique, uh, how would you go, usually go about this, Callum? So as you said already, you get a load of gel. And the reason you're doing that is you want to minimize pressure on the eye. So you get them to close their eyes and then you're putting gel outside the eye over the top of their eyelid in a big heap. And then you, I've seen some people use tegaderms. You don't have to use a tegaderm, um, but their eyes closed. You've got a heap of gel over the eye and then you use the linear probe which is the flat probe high frequency and you place it over the eye and you can then see through the different layers that you're looking through gain is really important here so learning your knobology on your ultrasound machine is really important because um you will probably need to turn the gain up quite a bit to get a good image yeah and uh, one of the the person who taught me the most ultrasounds her um, mnemonic or just thing for improving your image quality is dig if you've got a bad image dig for a better one and that's depth image gain so you know as with most such sounds start off kind of zoomed out so you get a whole picture of what you're looking at and then you want to zoom in so that your area of interest is occupying most of the screen image is getting it nice and central so that it's in the middle of what you're looking for and then gain is adjusting your gain up or down to get the the clearest view of what you're seeing and then something which kian taught me recently which i didn't know there's a little green arrow on the right of most ultrasound probes that is it's the focal point uh, and you can move it up and down the depth so you can actually change at what depth is the area of maximum focus and that's kind of a useful tip excellent 
Fantastic. Um, so, right, let's talk about some specifics then. So specific pathologies that we'll be um, examining with our ultrasound. So number one, our complete co uh, contraindication, globe rupture. We do not ultrasound this. Okay, so suspected globe rupture, you don't do it. Okay, um, if you've accidentally, um, I suppose, scanned someone and it looks like the size of the globe is decreased, um, the anterior chamber looks collapsed, and um, there's large vitreous hemorrhage, then you should be suspicious that there's a globe rupture and you should stop what you're doing and just take the pressure off the eye and then urgently call your ophthalmologist. Then in terms of uh, retrobulbar hematoma, so, you know, if you see the clinical um, signs, like we said, then, you know, just don't delay doing the, uh, the definitive procedure that you need to do. But if you're having a look with the ultrasound and you see that there is hypoechoic fluid posterior to the globe, that would be your um, your retrobulbar hematoma. So, you know, if you see that this is an ocular emergency, so you need to get on uh, and uh, and decompress that quite quickly. There's um, some studies here of uh, emergency medicine residents in the States um, that showed that this uh, ocular ultrasound had a sensitivity of 85% and specificity of 89% for diagnosing uh, retrobulbar he uh, hematoma. And for ultrasound fellowship trained uh, attendings or consultants, they had a sensitivity of 100%. So yeah, so again, this is something that is well within our reach you know yeah and there's those kind of accuracies are reflected in the other modalities as well so the the main ones would be um slightly less acute obviously than retroboba hematoma but retinal detachment vitreous hemorrhage mm -hmm. and vitreous detachment and there was a study in jama in 2019 by lama and et al that was prospective multi-center study in emergency departments looked at 225 adults with 225 adults with suspected pathology scanned by em attendings or residents and they were comparing the the findings to those of the ophthalmologist and POCUS had an overall sensitivity of 96.9% and specificity of 88% for the diagnosis of retinal detachment. For vitreous hemorrhage, the sensitivity was 81% and specificity 82 and for vitreous detachment, sensitivity was 42% and the specificity was 96%. So, you know, really, really high sensitivities and specificities for, for most of those modalities. And uh, for the vitreous attachment, which had the lower sensitivity, it's just reinforcing that point that it's a, a rule in test. You know, if you see it, it's a 96% specificity is fantastic. Um, but you're not gonna you're not gonna pick up every single one of them, you're gonna miss a few. So it's a it's a rule in test. Yeah. And, and, and tell me about the specific findings you'd, um, you'd see with all of those. Yeah, so the um, retinal detachment is a really cool one to see because you're you're literally visualizing the retina in the kind of hypoechoic posterior chamber, which is just black fluid filled, and you can see the retina, which is a thin hypoechoic, which is white, thin white line, lifted off the back, um, and it's it's you know that that's why the specificity is so high because when you see that, it's it's quite clear. The thing you can get confused between the two of them is a posterior uh, vitreal detachment and a retinal detachment looks slightly different um, and then a vitreous hemorrhage is similarly hypochoic kind of white but that's more in the middle of the eye and it's um, it's mobile so 
classically, if you get the patient to look left and then right, you see it swirling inside the eye. And I suppose the the the, the one kind of differentiating factor between the vitreous detachment and the retinal detachment is that you will, um, with the retinal detachment, it'll be tethered to the optic disc, whereas the vitreous detachment will just kind of be floating around on its own. Yeah, exactly. And we'll link a, a great video from MRAP um, of... Uh, scanning the eye and seeing all these pathologies because it's, it's obviously a much more visual thing than absolutely yeah no completely i think i think you just kind of need to see a few a few images a few videos and then uh and then get scanning and get get better at it yourselves and i think that kind of probably goes for the two of us as well we want to get that uh sensitivity and specificity up from the 80s back up to the high 90s i think yeah absolutely and i had a I had a sho come to me the other day saying oh come look at this i think i've uh, just diagnosed a vitreous hemorrhage and showed me the ultrasound and it yeah, it looks exactly like that. Again, we we got a uh, expert ophthalmology review, and they they confirmed our diagnosis. So that's one of the ones where you just you know it, it's useful also when you have a definitive diagnosis to go back to the patient and if they're happy to scan them. So um, this is true of all modalities. You know, once you've got a CT showing a aortic dissection or something, if the mm-hmm. patient if, is sitting there and, and nothing's immediately they're not immediately moving to another place, you can go and scan retrospectively and and see what the confirmed pathology looks like and improve your learning yeah. that way i think that's a, that's a great start to the uh, to the echo chamber Callum. super well looking forward so for the future ones we're going to have uh, expert guests on from ireland and abroad discussing the use of ultrasound in the modality in the area of the the case that's been presented so looking forward to getting some people who are much more knowledgeable than myself on to talk about ultrasound brilliant can't wait to hear it thanks again Callum. cheers mate For our last segment this month, TCR stalwart and our new IEMTA president, Orla Kelly, is back with some more pearls, just in time for the C-STEM interview this week. Hey Orla, how's it going? Hey Mo, how are things? All good. So you're back with a few tips for us. What are you advising us about this time? Ah, so as we know, C-STEM interviews are just around the corner coming up in the next few days. So I thought it'd be a pretty good time to um, to give a few last minute tips and tricks for people that are currently stressing out about about um, applying for our wonderful specialty. What do you think? Excellent. I think that's uh, timely and relevant. And uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's get into it. Perfect. So I think what we're going to do is we're just going to talk about some general interview prep tips, which would be non-special specific and then what we can do is we can go through each of the individual stations then and, and what might be kind of good or not so good things to bring up and to talk about sound all right sounds good let's do it perfect so obviously with the plague that we're living through there's no face-to-face interviews this year so it's all going to be on zoom mm-hmm. so in general with all interviews it's all about your preparation so well, let's talk about before the interview itself and um, so firstly just make sure your IT setup is okay so make sure that you know that wherever you're going to be doing the interview either your housemates are going to be out of the house or they know that the interview is on and um, make sure that your Wi-Fi connection is all right you know if you need a backup Ethernet cable I don't know if they still exist or backup laptop or whatever else you need then you have all your IT good to go so don't you know don't let IT problems let you down on the day because it's just going to be another level of stress that you don't want really to have to you know you don't want to be worrying about absolutely and probably think about think about the space that you're going to be in as well because i suppose you're going to be on camera if this was an in-person interview you'd do your best to look your best and i'm sure you'll do the same for this interview over webcam as well but you know kind of pay attention to how where you are makes you look as well so if you're in a very poorly lit room um you know you're you, you won't be doing yourself justice in terms of kind of all the all the work you did um to kind of 
get yourself dressed up and look nice, you know, and all that. So, um, so look at, think about your environment, think about the lighting in the space you have and, uh, yeah, make sure your bedroom's tidy behind you as well. Yeah. Don't do what I did in a recent, uh, exec meeting, which was, um, put a jumper over a tiger onesie thinking, oh, they're only going to see my, you know, my top half and then stand up halfway through the meeting. <laughs> That's a top tip right there. Yeah. Okay. See that. <laughs> um, and so then, of course, the same with any interview, you need to be practicing. And this is probably the biggest tip that I could give anyone that's going for an interview. You know, there's always a couple of questions that you think may or may not come up. And you might have written down some answers. You might have thought about it quite a lot in your head when you're going for walks, et cetera, et cetera. But really, the real money is you need to practice saying it out loud. Um, and what I would recommend people to do, although you might feel embarrassed, you just need to quickly get over it, is record yourself as well, preferably on video. So if you want to set up your phone to record um, and get one of your friends either via Zoom or in real life, but probably Zoom would be a little bit more high fidelity at this stage, might be a better idea. And they just ask you the questions and you record your answers over and over and over again. And what you'll see is that you, the amount of times you say ums, ahs, what you do with your body language, how you sit, how you carry yourself, how, you know, are you wringing your hands or your knuckles white because you're, you've got them clenched so much. It will give you some insights that you never really would have realized before. And it will just make it so much more comfortable on the day that if a, if a question that you've practiced comes up, you almost have a script um, and it should roll off the tongue nice and easy. And you know what you're going to say um, and you're kind of happy with the way you're going to deliver it instead of just, oh, well, I had this question ready in my head, but actually I've never said the words before. Um, so that's the main thing. You need to be walking around the house talking the whole lot. That's exactly kind of how I, how I look at it. I said this to a few people already, but you know, you kind of need to, see the interview as an audition you're going in to audition for a part and if you're going into audition for a part you'd have practiced those lines ad nauseum until you know them so well that you know when you deliver them they seem really polished and really natural all those kind of ums and ahs and like the nervous kind of hand gestures and all that they all kind of go away when you're kind of very sure of yourself and very well practiced so just kind of think about what part you're auditioning for and in this in in this scenario you're auditioning for the part of the ideal trainee so you know embody that ideal trainee and practice those lines with that in mind and then so during the interview we've already said that you're going to be in a, an appropriate place you're going to be appropriately dressed top to bottom so this is where you need to be confident you've practiced for this not only for the interview but also through your previous medical career um, you've put in the work if you have been called for interview it's because you could get the job so you need to act like that and to you know and to grab what's up for grabs here make sure you're succinct in your answers don't waffle again you that will, will be much less likely to happen if you've practiced it um listen to the question that that you're being asked and and try not to have try not to have too many kind of biases in your mind that you're you're just i'm i'm waiting for the for the cv section i'm i'm just waiting for it um and so you find it difficult to actually focus on what's being asked for, on, for you because you you're so desperate to talk about the one thing that you know like oh but i i know about my research and this is what i want to talk to um so you know, just take a breath, listen to what's being asked, mm -hmm. you know, take another two or three seconds yeah. in your mind to formulate your answer and then, and then deliver it. And that way you'll kind of, you'll avoid doing what can sometimes be disastrous. Um, which we all probably remember from our like Irish leaving to oral, which is where you mention something that you're not entirely um, confident on or sure about. And then, you know, that'll be the one thing that gets pounced upon and, and you'll be asked to expand upon it. And it's actually something that you never want to talk about in the first place, you know, um, and just make sure to sell yourself. And the way that you speak is so important. So 
Um, nobody should be saying anything like, oh, and then this happened and then we did this and then we, you know, put it forward for publication and then it got accepted. You know, it was like, I did this, I was the lead and then I did this and I did that and I did the other and I am great. Um, you need to have, you know, confident language and it's it's, it's all in the eye. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a story about you that you're telling, you know, they're not interviewing about someone else, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, precisely. Yeah, yeah. You're not doing the interview for someone else. It's it's all about you. Um, and then afterwards, my main tip would be, you know, close the computer. It's done now. Don't dwell on it. Don't dissect it, and go off and do something very nice for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. Those are fantastic general tips. Now let's kind of get a little bit more into the weeds about the system interview. So we know it's kind of broken down into three rough stations. So we've got our knowledge and dedication to emergency medicine our approach to a clinical problem and general suitability for a career in emergency medicine. So let's start with the uh, the knowledge and dedication part. What is expected of us in this station, Orla? So what I think they're probably looking for in this station is that you have thought about this decision to apply for this job, which means that you know everything that there is to know about the C-STEM training, the A-STEM training, your entire path as an emergency medicine trainee. So you need to be on the the emergency medicine program website, the RCSI website, and you need to understand the structure and the governance of how emergency medicine is delivered in Ireland. So, you, you know, you need to know, you know, what the IAM is. You need to know what IAMTA is. You need to know that, you know, RCSI um, is our kind of governing uh, college for emergency medicine. You need to know what the emergency medicine program is. You need to know what ICEMT is. Um, and really, you wouldn't walk into a job in Facebook without knowing what Facebook was or what you know the competitors were or, or without having a Facebook account. You just wouldn't do it. You'd prepare for the interview. So this is the same. You need to show that you've, you've researched the, the specialty. You know how it's delivered. Um, you need to have an idea of, of who's who, you know, like who, you know, who's the president of IEM um, and, and just have, have a really good in-depth knowledge of that. So you need to understand the, the structure that goes with it. And, and beyond emergency medicine as well, knowing a little bit more about the health system in general, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So medicine has quite an unusual organizational structure in that we actually have very little um, interactions with our actual bosses. So we, you know, we think about our consultants as our bosses, and of course they are, um, to which we're completely obedient and reverent. Um, but <laughs> really, you know, there's there's quite a few doctors out there that couldn't tell you the CEO of the HSE, you know, which is kind of, when you think about it, a little bit bonkers, that would, wouldn't mm. happen if you asked somebody from PwC, you know? So just have an idea of how the health system is structured in Ireland, how we deliver not just emergency medicine, but medicine in general. Um, you know, what are your opinions on that? Do you think that we do something particularly well or particularly badly and why? Um, and to just be informed of your general career um, as a doctor and how that engages with with state. Yeah, absolutely. And then kind of hone in specifically on emergency medicine once you have that big picture. And, you know, you will be expected to know about important challenges that the specialty faces and it's it's important not just to name the challenge but know it in detail know some key papers to reference and suggest some solutions mm. you're only kind of half doing the job by kind of like naming the issue without suggesting a solution yeah absolutely and actually i am um, you know very helpfully published a lot of their um press releases all of their press releases on um on their website and you know 
definitely I would have expected anyone going for an interview to have gone through all of those and to have read all of those. I think, you know, offering solutions to the challenges is would absolutely be necessary. Don't feel like you need to reinvent the wheel. You know, none of these are easy fixes. If they were, then they just have been fixed. And don't, I personally think you might disagree with it, but I, I don't think you need to kind of come up with, you know, like kind of new challenges, like, oh, everyone's going to talk about overcrowding or, you know, things like that. Um, oh, yeah. It's like, that that's fine because it's a massive challenge. So, you, you know, you Absolutely. can't really yeah. talk about emergency medicine provision without talking about the things that we're facing every day of which overcrowding is one. So don't feel like that, oh, well, my answer to this isn't going to be original. And um, this, this stuff doesn't necessarily need to be original. It just needs to be informed. No, this isn't, it's, it's not an exercise in creative writing, you know, like th- these, these are real life issues. And just because everyone's saying it, probably means it's it is a bigger issue so like i wouldn't discount it for that reason the big ones we all know about we know about overcrowding in the departments we know about workforce challenges that the specialty faces these are these are long-standing issues and i suppose you know covid isn't part of the archem curriculum in terms of exams and we'll come to talk about exams in a little bit but it is part of the real world and it has had an effect on a lot of these challenges as well. So just kind of have a think, little think about, you know, how that might have uh, affected these challenges. So kind of moving on to the um, approach to a clinical problem, how would you go about um, preparing for this, Orla? So this one, this one, everyone, you know, of course, should be preparing for as we prepare for any of the stations. But this is the one where you can shine. You know, this is you've gone to medical school, you've, you've passed it, um, you've done your OSCEs. Uh, so this is something that, you know, you, sh- you should be able to you should be able to really excel in. And I really want to kind of for the for the interns that might be listening or, or people that aren't um, that don't have as much clinical experience as say there's, you know, there could be some registrars that are going for CSTEM posts. Um, don't feel like your clinical experience is going to let you down on this station. It won't. The key to this is to show that you are logical and methodical and you're safe. So if you need to call for help for a patient, you can call for help for a patient. And of course, the, everything that we do, you know, in emergency medicine is ABCs. So approach the clinical scenario in a stepwise fashion. So, you know, airway, breathing, circulation. I'd like to, you know, throw in there that before that, you should think of, you know, patient safety. Oh, hang on now, before we kind of, you know, start getting into history and exam and stuff, is the patient in an appropriate clinical area? You know, are they talking about a, yeah. a you know, a hypotensive tachycardic elderly patient that's, you know, stuck in kind of the back of minors in which case the first thing to do is like right well listen i want this patient moved to resus and i'd like to alert a senior colleague you know so you're going to show that you're you're sensible and safe and then you're going to show that you're methodical so going down from an airway breathing circulation point of view and just have a stepwise approach to the patient take your time and you know and then ask for your your relevant investigations and and you know you can formulate a management plan and if calling for senior help is part of your management plan that's fine we call for senior help all the time in real life so don't feel like you're not allowed to say that in the in the case in fact if you are trying to manage a STEMI by yourself they're not going to look upon that favorably either more than not being afraid to say it absolutely do say it every opportunity you get because that's a really important part of our practice in a lot of scenarios so make, make sure you do say it um, as often as often as you can and like I said Orla review all the information that you're given be systematic but sometimes you're going to have you know a piece of data interpretation in front of you and don't beat around the bush when it comes to saying what it is say what it is and then talk about like your your supporting evidence i suppose you know so if you're reviewing a chest x-ray don't start with you know oh this is a chest x-ray of a 65 year old female you know and just have a look at the x-ray say what it is and then you know so state then elaborate 
you need to be kind of very, very succinct and to the point. These are very, um, very short stations and there's likely going to be several clinical scenarios for you to get through. So you want to maximize the number of points that you're going to you're going to be scoring on these. So, yeah, just be be succinct and to the point. Yeah. And I think it's probably fair to say that whatever clinical scenario it is, it's probably not going to be, you know, a terribly rare presentation or, you know, an no. unusual condition. So be confident that you'll you'll know you'll have clinical knowledge surrounding it you know like there's a chest x-ray it's a pneumonia or it's a pneumothorax the, you know there's an ecg it's a it's a heart block or it's a STEMI. you know like it's you know you, you you will know the clinical stuff yeah it's about how you present it as an aside again don't do what i did which is um if you have if you're slightly visually challenged and you need glasses maybe not all of the time but only some of the time please do wear them for your interview because you'll be handed an ecg and then you won't be able to read it <laughs> um, and you'll feel too silly to look for your glasses in your bag and then you'll find it much more difficult so if you need glasses please wear them and you look really silly when you're walking into doors and everything like you know well, so i can see doors yeah. i just can't see the i just can't see the little boxes on the ecg <laughs> yeah so, so there's not a whole lot in terms of specific so we can tell you for the for the clinical scenario, but just kind of stick to those points, you know, be systematic, review all the information that you, that, that you have, make sure the patient's safe, be systematic, be systematic, be systematic, um, and you'll be fine. I know the sepsis six. Cool. Right. So then in terms of our general suitability for a career in emergency medicine, what kind of things would you be looking for in that, Orla? There's a little bit of crossover here, I think, between the, the first station as well, really. Um, you know, you want to display that you are going to be the right fit for this training scheme. And the only way you can display that is you know how the training scheme works. Um, you know, the exams that you're expected to do, maybe you've already done some of them. You need to show that this is what I think would make, you know, a good trainee. And this is why I think I would make a good trainee. And this is where you're selling yourself. And this is where you're like, I have done this research. I have done, you know, um, I have shown that I'm committed to EM by, you know, either if, you know, if you're an intern, you may, you might've done an elective in it. Um, you might've done, you know, um, a summer research project or something in it. You can say all of the things that I have done, why I am great and why I am going to be a good fit for um, for this program. And you have to think that, you know, it's the program they're, they're investing in you by by giving you a, a trainee spot. So, you know, you need to demonstrate that, well, if I get the trainee spot, this is where I see myself in five and 10 years time. And you need to show that, you know, you will get a return on your investment in me. This is where you get to say, this is where my you know, this is where my value lies. This is what I can contribute. And this is what I want to get from the training scheme as well. I mean, you know, they, they are going to train you and they will invest in you. Um, but you need to show how you're going to develop through the training scheme, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. I suppose a lot of the time, this kind of station in interviews generally will start off with a kind of very open question like, you know, tell us about you or take me through your CV, something like that, something nice and open that kind of gives you a lot of scope. What you need to make sure you do is that when you're given that opportunity is that you take it and you squeeze every last little bit out of it. So like someone said to me before when I was preparing for an interview, when you get something like that, you need to just take the ball and run, you know, have a good structured response to that practiced so that, you know, you can guide the discussion the way you want it to go. So, you know, take people through your CV in a nice structured fashion and make sure you hit all the highlights. And, you know, because I suppose it would, the, 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 um, the interviewers will be listening out for certain specific things. They don't want to hear about your research for 20 minutes. They want to hear about, you know, you as an entire kind of, you know, professional person. So, you know, they want to hear about your clinical experience, your experience in teaching, your audit research, any quality improvement you might have been involved in. 
and I suppose any um, any experience you have in terms of kind of management or leadership. So yeah, try and kind of fit as much of you as you can into that answer. Yeah, I'd actually I'd, I'd kind of go a step a step forward with that in that if, if you get that dream question of talk us through your CV, which is definitely going to be one of those questions that you will have prepared because it's you know it's a reasonable question to come up in any interview for anything. This is where you can you know have have your three things that your three things that make you stand out. Well, well, this is why I should get this job. And, you know, I think as like, particularly Irish people, um, we're maybe not so great at selling ourselves and saying how great we are. But, you know, if someone asks you, talk me through your CV, you can like, well, absolutely. Yeah. So you can see here, um, in, you know, under my educational um, background that I, you know, did this, that and the other. And then in my clinical experience, I did this, that and the other. And then um, in research, I have this. And if you have those, you know, three big points um, and make sure the, f- the first one is, you know, the first one is your USP. Like that's the one that you're like, this is why I should get this job. And, you know, and to be confident in that. That's it. No, exactly. And I, and I think you that right. Just kind of front load, front load your strong points, you know, and um, so that like right from the start, you kind of grab people's attention, you know, and instead of kind of talking them through your CV in chronological order where you say, oh, I started off as an intern in, you know, this university hospital and then I was an SHO it's like no one cares that's not that's not wowing anyone you know start off with the big highlights you know and then uh, and, and then take it from there um, and I think you know one, one thing to remember is like these people are, are interviewing you for you know for a trainee position but also in the future for a possible you know consultant colleague so you know try and demonstrate that not only would you make a good trainee but um, after X amount of years that actually you'd be somebody that people want to work with, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Then, uh, you know, the the other kind of very, I suppose, predictable sort of questions would be, yeah, so tell me about the exam structure. Um, what kind of exams do you need to have done? So make sure you get onto the ARCHEM website and um, and, and have a run through all the exams. Um, they've changed again recently, so just kind of make sure that you, uh, that, that you know what exams are expected of you and by what stage. Some other kind of, you know, very um, very predictable ones would be take me through your, your strengths or, you know, tell me about your greatest weaknesses, you know. So, they're again not easy questions to um to make up an answer to on the fly so just prepare um you have to you have to have everything prepared yeah i i I did once receive one small piece of advice which was that um oh they're not allowed to ask you what are your greatest strengths or weaknesses in interviews anymore so you don't need to worry about that um that's not true (laughs) um so that is definitely something that needs to be prepped um it's it's not a bad idea to ask if you you know if you feel that you can um ask your consultant uh your consultant trainers at the moment you know what what do you think my strengths and weaknesses are sometimes you know having an idea in your head about what they might be and then chatting to somebody and getting some 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 feedback on that is very very helpful and actually can be quite kind of eye-opening and enlightening not even for interviews but just for kind of you know life in general um and just have an idea of that and that yeah that's that's another question that um that if you get it you're like brilliant answer is prepped you know and you can kind of away you go i would caution against this oh turn your greatest weakness into an actual strength as in oh i you know i work too hard but you know you know that kind of thing i think it's um um i think it's a bit i mean we all have weaknesses that that are not secret strengths and they are weaknesses so don't, yes, don't I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be too i wouldn't be too afraid to say that if that's what they've asked you for but again you know you want to be selling yourself so don't don't spend too much time on it yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, someone who can't be honest with themselves about their weaknesses, you know, that's, that's, that, that's not a good sign. And I know we want to kind of, you know, put our best foot forward in an interview. So like, I mean, don't, 
don't give them a like a fatal flaw in your character. It's like, oh, I'm I'm just generally a very lazy worker. Nah, like, no, but that, that's not what we're saying. But yeah. you know, I'm never on time. <laughs> <laughs> but like, but at the same time, just kind of make sure that it's an that it's an honest enough answer and that it is genuinely a weakness rather than just you know like a self compliment dressed up like you know. Mm. And like you said, Orla, I think uh, the important thing after that is just to make sure that you switch off after that interview and um, and no uh, no calling your buddies for postmortems. That uh, I don't think it'll serve any purpose. You just need to de-stress, like you know, congr- congratulate yourself on all the great work that you did to prepare for it, and uh, yeah, enjoy the rest of your day. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Close the laptop, go for a walk or a run or whatever it is that you like to do to kind of relax. Um, you'll have put an awful lot of work into this and it's, it's that, you know, that like whew, anti-climax um, kind of release. So just um, have something nice picked out for yourself to do for the afternoon because uh, you deserve it, a chance to relax after all that. Absolutely. Cool. All right. I think we'll wrap it up there. Thanks very much again, Orla. Excellent. No problem at all. Always a pleasure. And that is it for another episode of the Case.Report. Thanks very much for listening in. And a special thanks to our adult in the room this month, Dr. Fran O'Keefe. Best of luck to everyone interviewing this week. I'm sure you'll be a credit to the specialty. And I look forward to working with you someday. To everyone else, join the discussion on Twitter at The Case Report. Subscribe to the feed on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your pods. And don't forget to give us a rating or review. It'll help new people find the show. Until next time, may your coffee be strong and your rounds be grand. TCR out.